The information provided on this podcast does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice. Instead, all information, content, and materials available are for general informational purposes only. Welcome to Rights Here, Rights Now, the podcast about disability, advocacy, and activism. I'm your advocate host, Ren Fazuski. And I'm your advocate host, Virginia Ferris. Every two weeks, we dig into relevant issues, current events, and avenues for self-advocacy. Because someone has to. And it might as well be us. This podcast is produced by the Disability Law Center of Virginia, the Commonwealth's Protection and Advocacy Agency for Disability Rights. Find out more at dlcv.org. So, Virginia, today we have something of a pretty special episode. Yes, um, we are. We're still recording remotely, but we were able to um, to dial in the manager of our communities unit, um, Erin Haw, who uh, was one of my mentors when I first started at DLCV. She is awesome, um, and she is going to be talking to us a little bit about uh, DLCV's response to the COVID nineteen crisis. Sort of what we're doing. What's important for folks with We've been obviously on our website, we've been doing updates regarding um, as we get information, but I think this is good to kind of explain what DLCV is doing with our advocacy work. Um, And yeah, Erin, who is advocate extraordinaire, uh, doing all the community stuff. But Virginia, you forgot that you're going to be talking to us about institutions. Yes, for better or worse, I will be giving the uh, perspective of the institutions unit and sort of what we're doing to respond to the crisis. But before we jump in, let's check out disability in the news. Students in the Hasbrook Heights, New Jersey, have taken online learning to a whole new level recently. Over a dozen middle and high school students have been using 3D printers while at home to create face masks for the area's local hospitals. These students, all with disability, had been using 3D printers in the classroom prior to the quarantine, but when schools in the area shut down, teachers had the great idea to deliver the 3D printers to the students' homes. Shane Miller, the STEM coordinator for this district, dropped off 3D printers at over a dozen homes and gave quick tutorials to the families. Since then, students have been printing masks all day, every day for local hospitals, and new 3D printers have even been donated so more students can participate. New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy applauded these students at a news conference recently, expressing his gratitude for their selfless acts during this time. All right, and now we're ready to get into it. Thank you so much, Erin, for joining us today. Hello, thanks for having me. It is always a blessing to have one of the most senior and excellent advocates ever enter into the podcast Zoom meeting. Is that what we're gonna call it? Um, So we have some really important stuff to talk about today. Uh, So let's just dive right in. Um, What are some of the things uh, systemically that DLCV is doing to track COVID-19 responses in the community? That's a great question. Um, And we're really focusing on a number of different efforts right now. The first big one that all 
highlight for you is the work that we're doing around our CRIS database. Um, for people who are listening and maybe don't know what that is, under state law, we have access to a lot of incident reports for people with disabilities who live in licensed um, residential settings and also receive services from licensed community-based providers like day programs and those sorts of things. And so we have had this information for a long time and we do a lot of trending and tracking around the incident reports and identifying cases for abuse and neglect through those incident reports. But over the last few weeks, we've really spent a lot of time developing a more COVID-19 focused um, trending, tracking, analysis, and follow-up process. So our wonderful Chris team reviewers are identifying reports um, in three broad areas. So the first one is going to be individuals in licensed um, programs who have suspected COVID-19. The other big area um, is going to be people who have confirmed COVID-19. And then the third big group um, that we're kind of trending and tracking are people who don't have COVID-19, but who have not been able to access services because of COVID-19. So we're tracking and trending all of this data, identifying um, patterns and trends whenever we can. And then we've also developed a provider survey tool, which allows us to reach out to providers that are having identified issues, either securing testing for their residents um, or accessing needed crisis services in the community and ask them about what, what issues they're encountering and how we might be able to help with resolving some of that. So we're still in the early stages of those surveys, but Think that'll be a really um, good tool to support our system. Clearly, we're tracking it. Is there any sort of like how people are responding to the crisis, or like people you know, providers managing how the crisis is happening in their facilities? I think that's the piece that we're trying to get at with the provider surveys. So the incident reports that we get a lot of times, what the providers are required to report to the state is just like, "Hey, Johnny." was presenting with some symptoms. We took him to the doctor and the doctor diagnosed him with COVID-19, something like that. And that doesn't really help us to understand, well, how is the group home where Johnny resides, making sure that the other residents are safe? Is the group home provider having trouble accessing PPE? Um, what are the bigger implications here that um, we should know about? and be doing something about because we have a much more direct line of communication with state leadership than a lot of these um, smaller providers in particular have. So again, we're still kind of in the early stages of our provider surveys, but I think that's going to be a really meaningful tool for us to have a better understanding of what's going on in the community and to then follow up. Is there particular areas um, that we're really trying to figure out about how they're being impacted like um, I know there's been talk about telehealth and, and drive-through testing and how that can impact the disability community. Absolutely, yes. That is something that we are looking at really closely, not just in the context of Chris, but in the overall service system. So we are aware that individuals who are blind and some of our constituents who um, have 
physical disabilities that might get might make it difficult for them to drive themselves are having a hard time accessing the drive-through testing sites. Um, and so we've been exploring, you know, what accommodations do the different healthcare providers that are offering these testing sites need to provide to our constituents. Um, and if the testing site for whatever reason isn't going to be a viable option, what is the alternative that should be provided to people? So something we've heard about that's happening in some parts of the state, but perhaps not everywhere, um, so we're following up on this more, is that local health departments and some of the different healthcare providers are going to people's homes to offer testing there. I think the problem right now, at least as at the time that we're recording this episode, there's not a consistent statewide practice for that. And so if one of our constituents who is blind and isn't able to drive and doesn't have a family member that can drive them, is living in Northern Virginia, has a provider that's willing to come to their house and test them, great. But does that same service exist for maybe a similar constituent in Southwest Virginia? So we're still exploring that. Um, but it is a concern. And on the telehealth side, we of course think telehealth is a great option for a lot of people right now. It helps to slow the spread of some of the COVID-19 outbreaks. But a number of our clients over the years have struggled to obtain the needed effective communication accommodations in traditional doctor's offices, and that's certainly something um, that could make telehealth challenging as well. So thankfully, mm -hmm. we still have um, our attorneys and advocates providing individual case services to folks who might call us if somebody is deaf and hard of hearing and needs an ASL interpreter to be able to access their telehealth services or some other kind of effective communi communication accommodation, and they're not getting that they can contact our office um, and get, um, at a minimum, some information about what their rights are, but um, also potentially full case services for us to jump in and help resolve that issue so people aren't being denied their, their important health care. So Erin, I've been hearing some rumblings about um, changes or like lack of changes um, to Medicaid waivers, Medicaid overall, and that sort of thing. Can you tell us what you know about that? Absolutely. And this is something that is changing every day. So I will encourage people who are listening to this, if you want the most up-to-date information, to please check out our COVID-19 website, check out our Facebook page, or give us a call because the information I'm sharing right now is based on what is happening at the time of recording. So um, Virginia, like a number of other states, requested very early on in this pandemic some flexibilities around their Medicaid programs from the federal government. And the federal government approved that. So right now in Virginia, people who have Medicaid don't have to pay any co-pays for their medications. They um, aren't at risk of being disenrolled basically um, for failing to send in a form. Um, there's kind of a moratorium in place to make sure that people can have consistent access to healthcare during the pandemic. So that's great and that benefits Medicaid beneficiaries generally. The area where we're still really, really concerned and have done some very concerted advocacy um, around is 
what we call an Appendix K for our home and community-based services waivers. So in Virginia, we have a number of what we call Medicaid waivers that essentially offer an alternative to institutional care to people with disabilities. So we have a CCC plus Medicaid waiver, which is an alternative to nursing home care. And then we have three developmental disability Medicaid waivers, which are an alternative to what we call ICF or intermediate care facility level of care. So these waivers are utilized by thousands and thousands of Virginians. And a lot of these individuals, because they have chosen a waiver over institutional care, want to remain in the community, they want to remain in their own homes, they want to remain with their families. But to be able to do that safely, they need people who can come in and meet their needs, whether that's related to um, you know, tube feedings or um, medication administration. People need to be coming into the home to work with them. But the problem that we're having right now is that, understandably, a number of the people who typically are employed to provide these in-home services either themselves are sick, so they're having to quarantine at home and not go anywhere, or are concerned about going into a lot of different people's homes and potentially picking something up themselves in those settings and themselves then getting sick or their families getting sick. And so you have a lot of individuals with Medicaid waivers right now who again are living independently or living with family and they want to be able to have some more flexibility about who can be their paid caregiver during the pandemic. And Virginia can't authorize that flexibility until get permission from CMS, which is our federal Medicaid agency. And unfortunately, Virginia has really been dragging their feet on submitting our Appendix K um, request to CMS. So we um, have basically demanded that the governor do that as soon as possible. Um, 25 states have already submitted and had their Appendix K requests approved. So there's really no reason for Virginia to, to wait around on this any longer. Um, every day that we go without those enhanced flexibilities for Medicaid waiver beneficiaries, they are at risk of being placed in an institution, which I think we would all agree is um, not a great thing anytime. We never want people to be institutionalized if that can be um, avoided. But right now, in particular, it's very, very dangerous. I know we'll get into this a little bit later on the institutional side of things, but it's very, very dangerous for people in institutional settings. You're much more at risk of um, contracting COVID-19 in those settings. Yeah, what 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 you're saying makes a lot of sense. Um, I, I've previously spoken on the podcast that um, my niece uh, is disabled and uses a CCC plus waiver. And luckily, half of my family right now is quarantined in their home. So they have six adults. So they're 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 pretty lucky in that regard that they have a lot of hands on deck, but not everybody has that. So I'm sure that um you know, a lot of our constituents are hoping to that we get an answer from the governor soon. Um, speaking of money, obviously everyone's been talking about, you know, the, the stimulus checks and all this money that's supposed to be coming people's way. Um, how is any of this different? Um, how is this going to affect our, our folks in the community? 
That's such a great question. And this is another area where updates are kind of trickling down from the federal government and from the state level every day. So again, um, if you are listening to this and you are worried about how a stimulus check might impact your own benefits, I would encourage you to reach out to us by phone or to check the resources on our website for the most current information. But generally, as we know right now, um, we have resolved, we, meaning like the royal we, the collective advocacy world, um, have resolved a couple of issues that were of concern initially. So a number of our constituents who are on Medicaid also receive SSI benefits. And because they receive SSI benefits, they don't typically file a, a like federal tax return. Mm -hmm. So there were some initial concerns about, are they gonna be left out of the stimulus um, package altogether? And thankfully, I think that piece has been resolved. Just yesterday, there were some updates that went out from the IRS and from Social Security Administration talking about how people who are on SSI and don't typically file a tax return can get that money. So that's good. Um, the concern though that is still a little unresolved, at least in Virginia, is around the impact of enhanced unemployment insurance on people's benefits, whether that might be an SSI benefit, a Medicaid benefit, a Section 8, like housing voucher benefit, all of these means-tested kind of services that are available through a combination of federal and state programs. Um, I think that's the thing that we are still having to devote a lot of time and attention to and understanding. If I, if I need my Medicaid, because if I'm a person with a developmental disability and I need my Medicaid waiver to help me remain in the community, to remain outside the walls of an institution, and I receive, um, and I've been working, um, not to the level of being like fully gainfully employed, but I've been working a little bit and I am now unemployed and I apply for unemployment insurance. What is that extra money going to potentially do to these other services? I really, really need to stay safe in the community. So I don't know that we have great answers around that as of our recording today, um, but it's something we're actively tracking and we'll be looking into further. Um, thankfully, I think the my understanding at least is that um, the stimulus checks are not going to be counted for a year as um, income for people mm -hmm. on like SSI or people who utilize Medicaid benefits. So, so that's good. Um, but there's just a few other like issues around unemployment insurance that we're still figuring out. So are you guys um, in the communities unit, are you doing anything to mitigate the impact of um, COVID-19 and COVID-19 precautions on um, folks with disabilities ability to access other services like crisis services, other medical services? I can imagine those have been impacted a lot. Absolutely. We have a, a fairly robust ADA practice. So like I mentioned earlier, individuals who are having a hard time accessing their healthcare services because their healthcare services are not accessible. Um, we are able in most of those cases to at least provide some short-term assistance to help resolve that issue. 
Um, for individuals in the community, like our constituents who reside in group homes, for example, who might have some behavioral health support needs. Um, we have started to see that individuals have not been able to access the full array of like in-home crisis supports that might have been available pre-pandemic. And so, and I'm sure a lot of people listening know this, the, the approach that DLCV takes to our work is kind of twofold. We have our direct client advocacy where we're jumping into a disability rights issue with a client and going to meetings and filing complaints and getting a timely resolution to their issue. But then there's this other like watchdog oversight investigative arm of what DLCV does. And so for these cases that we're starting to hear about through adult protective services, through the CRIS database, or from people just calling our office where individuals are not getting the services they need in the community and therefore being harmed in some way. That's resulting in neglect, abuse, unnecessary institutionalization. We have the ability to open up investigations and to really dive deeper into where the breakdowns were in the system and advocate for some needed reforms. And every time we do that, we of course have the person that we're investigating on behalf of best interests like in mind and want to resolve it for them individually but we're always looking for those systemic angles as well where if we can learn a lesson from one individual circumstances and use that um, to to get needed reforms across the board um, that is what, what we have done and what we will continue to do around this yeah certainly these this crisis situation highlights some of the uh, fractures in the system that we we're already aware about, but certainly magnifying those issues. Um, so that's a lot for communities. And obviously we're developing this, um, you know, things are gonna change and I'm sure we're gonna get updates in the future, but um, I guess let's take a little, a little step to the left and talk about how this is affecting folks in institutions and so my uh, advocate host, Virginia, will now be my interviewee. And Aaron, feel free to jump in as a host. All right, so Virginia, is DLCV still monitoring at these large facilities during this outbreak? Yes, absolutely, yes. Um, the way that we are monitoring looks a little bit different than it did, you know, a month ago. Uh, we are doing our best to keep our clientele safe by limiting in-person visits. Well, I know as, as someone also on this unit, you know, we are still, we're, you know, there's a lot of monitoring we work to do, you know, speaking with our clients on the phone or other mediums and uh, contacting their providers. And Well, yeah, um, and, uh, you know, DLCV's leadership um, met with the leadership of DBHDS um, to talk about uh, hospital monitoring and to explain our access authority and demand that we have continued access to the large institutions, to the state hospitals during this time. Our access authority is very clear that we do still have that ability to go in even while this is happening. DLCV, we're not visitors we're advocates. So um, we still have that ability to go in in person if we need to. Um, 
But in the meantime, we're doing as much as we can to get information other ways. We have uh, ways in which we can set up video calls with clientele. Um, we are still, of course, accepting phone calls. Um, and, you know, I would urge anybody who knows of any situation with a person with a disability in an institution, don't assume that we already know about that situation. Um, give us a call because there's there's more to monitor than ever with this going on. So, you know, kind of like you said, um, obviously we want folks and institutions to reach out to us um, because there's a lot of stuff going on that is particularly important in this time. And, you know, I'm sure people ask, what, why? Why is it so important for us to be in institutions and continue our advocacy work at this time? Well, first and foremost, people's people's rights don't stop just because there's a global pandemic happening. There may be some practices that look a little bit different, but um, laws are still in place. Human rights regulations are still in place and folks with disabilities should be able to fully exercise their rights even during these strange and unprecedented times. Additionally, folks in congregate care environments are at really, really increased risk for um, being exposed to COVID-19, just because it's a lot of folks often packed into small spaces, depending on what the environments are. You can't always socially distance. And there are some environments where asking for people to socially distance in that way would just unreasonably isolate someone. If somebody's in a state hospital and you say, okay, you can't get within six feet of anybody else. And, you know, the day room is only 12 feet wide. You know, that, that's really, really limiting people's access to what, for all intents and purposes, at this moment is their home. So, um, you know, we need to make sure that facilities are not balanced. We have to make sure that facilities are respecting rights while doing as much to protect people from infection as possible. Since, um, since these pandemic and quarantine measures started, are there any specific issues that um, DLCV has been seeing in these institutions? Yeah, there, um, there have been a couple blips that we have been um, able to advocate and write the situation. There was an issue at one state hospital where um, folks learned that they would not be getting um, packages from loved ones uh, because of concerns of cross-contamination. It's very clear in the human rights regulations that folks have the right to send and receive mail, and that really cannot be reasonably stopped, even in this situation. There are ways that you can sanitize packages. Um, we were able to advocate with that, with the leadership of the facility, and uh, the leadership shut that whole thing down and folks are still getting their packages as promised. Um, we are seeing issues with people's discharges um, 
folks who may need nursing home level of care upon uh, their discharge from a state hospital. Uh, there are nursing homes that have uh, freezes on admissions right now. So that does make some things difficult. It does sometimes keep people in hospitals longer. We are closely monitoring that issue and sort of examining ways to make sure that folks are not being kept indefinitely in the most restrictive environment, um, that folks get to be stepped down to less restrictive environments. For the most part, the good news is people who are looking to move into independent living, um, into uh, you know small assisted living facilities and that kind of thing, they're not seeing the same kind of barriers in discharge. So we are, mm -hmm. we are glad about that. Um, we're seeing some issues with access to treatment um, in hospitals where, uh, you know, for instance, treatment groups have been suspended. So essentially, if all your treatment groups have been suspended and you're in a state hospital, sometimes the only treatment you're receiving is medication, uh, right. which is not great. Uh, so we, we really urge you if this is, if you're somebody who this is affecting, if you're somebody, um, who's having difficulty accessing treatment right now, or if your loved one is having difficulty accessing treatment right now, give us a call. We're trying to address these issues, um, and advocate for people as we learn about these situations. Um, additionally, uh, there have been staff right now, as of recording, and this could, of course, change even by the time the podcast is released, um, but there have been staff at four different state facilities who have tested positive for COVID-19. We are tracking this. Um, it does not appear, as of the recording of this podcast, that there have been any uh residents of any of the hospitals except for the Virginia Center for Behavioral Rehabilitation who have tested positive at this time, but we are closely monitoring that um, to basically evaluate the provider's response for if somebody does test positive in that circumstance. So yeah, it does sound like there, there's quite a few things that are particularly impacted because of COVID-19, like you said, I think one of the things you really need to highlight in communities and in institutions is that these are people's homes and that even with the need to put protective measures in place and to make sure people are safe, people have certain rights in their home. And it doesn't matter if that looks like a nursing home, a state hospital, a group home, uh, those rights should not be impacted. So that's really what we're doing to make sure that, again, that everyone is safe and protected, but also that people's rights are not infringed during this time. If you're having this issue, please get in touch with us. And I just wanted everybody listening to know that there's a couple of ways that you can do that. When we're not under a quarantine pandemic type of situation, we accept walk-ins in our office. That is not happening right now but we are still actively banning our phones and our um, intake system. So folks can call us at 1-800-552-3962 on a Monday, Wednesday, or Friday. And we also, if you have access to the internet, can go to dlcv.org slash get, G-E-T dash help, H-E-L-P. 
and there's a little web-based form individuals can fill out there to request assistance from our office. And that's not to say that we're not still looking at everything else that could possibly go on. So if there's anything else that has nothing to do with COVID-19, you absolutely can call us about that too. Um, but we are doing a lot of work um, regarding COVID-19 and trying to uh, get a handle on it. Thank you so much, Erin and Virginia, for chatting with me today. This was fabulous. You guys are doing an excellent job. And I guess all of this will change next week, so we'll have you on next week. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, but we are updating our website um, as soon as we have more information or updated information. You can certainly check that out. Um, but thank you guys so much for chatting with me. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And now for a DLCV highlight. Beth is a high school sophomore who has a hearing impairment and some intellectual disabilities. Beth's father contacted DLCB because they had met with DARS about pre-employment transition services, but they had not gotten any follow-up from DARS. DLCB participated in two meetings for Beth. In her first meeting, we advocated for her to do a, a career interest inventory using pictures instead of words. DARS provided this resource for Beth. In the second meeting, Beth picked careers that fit her interest based upon the pictures. Because of our advocacy, Beth was able to receive the services that she needed. She has now been able to pick careers based on her interest, and she is moving in the right direction vocationally. Best dad is grateful that there are new ways communicate, to communicate with his daughter and her new ability to have options. So once again, thank you so much, Erin, for taking the time to chat with us. Uh, she is a font of knowledge, and we are so blessed to have her. And Virginia, obviously, I love having you as my host and my guest. This is a weird time, Ren. I don't know if you've noticed, but this is a weird and scary time. We're just all doing our best and trying to be kind and good to one another. So I think that is the best we can strive for. And DLCV is continuing its work in this very strange time we're living in. So Thank you all for listening to this episode of Rights Here, Rights Now, brought to you by the Disability Law Center of Virginia. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review. If you need assistance or want more information about DLCV and what we do, visit us online at dlcv.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at Disability Law VA, and you can always share us with your friends. Until next time, I'm Virginia Ferris. And I'm Ren Fazuski. And this has been Rights Here, Rights Now. <laughs> <laughs>